Galatians chapter 3 is where we are going to be today, as well as Genesis 15. So you want to put a bookmark in Genesis 15. We're going to hop over there in a few moments. Galatians 3, Genesis 15. Galatians 3 verses 15 to 22 are, uh, they're a difficult passage. it, It was a hard week for me trying to understand. I mean, I know what it says. It's so simple, but trying to put it together and in a sermon, have it make sense. Um, it truly is, I think, one of those passages where Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16 that sometimes some of the things that the Apostle Paul says are hard to understand. And this is one of those passages. It, the truth of it is very simple, but when you try to break it down, at least in making a sermon, it's very difficult. So, But it's God's Word, and because it's a, uh, a thick passage, let's pray and ask Him to help us. Father, we come to your word. There's nothing wrong with your word. There's something wrong with our minds, our hearts. Your word is good. It's true. It's perfect. But your word also says that Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. And this is one of those passages, God. We could spend a month here easily. um, And we're trying to do it in one sermon. And I hope it makes sense. So, God, we we ask that by the power of the Spirit, you would open our eyes to understand your word here, to, to be able to, to see the distinction that exists between law and gospel and how important it is for us to read the Bible through that lens. So help us, God. Help me to explain it and preach and teach um, by the power of the Spirit. Turn our eyes to see Jesus and to understand and believe and trust in the promises of the gospel as we see them here in Galatians 3. So help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes you need some light in order to understand just how dark your situation is. Sometimes you need some light in order to understand just how dark your situation is. This was never more true than on the dark night of February 21st. 1964, when an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents appeared on many televisions across America. The episode is called Final Escape, and it centers around a bank robber named Paul Perry. Perry is convicted of his crimes and sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in a state prison lumber camp. Determined to get out, Perry befriends an alcoholic inmate named Doc who suffers from serious heart palpitations. Doc has already served 29 years in prison, but he has many special privileges because of his good behavior. Now, Doc was in charge of the prison infirmary as well as burials for the dead. He was in charge of the morgue. He'd take people out and bury them, put the headstones in place, and they trusted him that he wouldn't escape. So Doc makes an offer to Perry one day. If Perry can use some of his stolen funds, if he can finance an operation for Doc's sick granddaughter, then Doc says, I can help you escape. The men agree. Each makes a promise to the other to keep their end of the bargain. In a sense, they enter into a covenant with one another. Doc's plan is to hide Perry inside the coffin of the next inmate who dies. Doc tells Perry, the next time that someone dies, sneak into the prison morgue where the coffins are stored and climb in with the dead body. 
I'll bury the coffin, and as soon as the grave diggers and guards leave, they'll think I'm putting in the headstone, and I'll quickly dig you up, and you can escape. All goes according to plan. Perry sneaks out under cover of darkness and climbs into the dark coffin. The next day, he is buried alive with the corpse, and he waits for Doc to show up. After a while, Perry grows concerned because Doc hasn't shown up to dig him up. And then Perry reaches into his pocket and lights a match to find that he is in the coffin with Doc. Doc had a heart attack and died the night before. Sometimes you need some light in order to understand just how dark your situation is. Paul will explain in our text today that the law of God comes like a light to show us just how dark our situation is. The law of God shows us that we are sinners, that we are rebels, that we are by nature law breakers. That's one of the uses of the law, to expose our sin so that we will run to Jesus, our Redeemer. The law strikes the match so that we will see we are spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ. The law strikes the match so that we see that we are in one sense buried alive with no hope apart from Jesus digging us up in the gospel. And Jesus does that through his perfect life and perfect death. He lived for us and he died for us. And trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are what justifies us. It's what makes us righteous. We are declared righteous when we believe the gospel message. That Jesus lived and died and rose on our behalf. In our passage today, Paul is going to strike a match so that light will enter our coffins, if you will. So that we can read the words that are inscribed on the inside of the coffins that we often climb in. And those words are simply this, it's about promise and not performance. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. Though heavy and dense and thick and kind of boulder-like and hard to get your arms around, in a sense, you could sum up what Paul is saying in these verses with these words. It's about promise and not performance. The gospel is about God's promise to us. The law is about our obedience and our performance and our keeping the law. And because we are lawbreakers and break the law every day, we needed Jesus to live the life that we could never live so that we could be made right with God because God's law demands perfection. And we're all born sinners because of Adam. We're lawbreakers by nature. So we needed someone to live the life that we could never live. We needed someone to live up to the standard of God's law for us because we cannot do it. The gospel is all about God's promise and not our performance. It's about his promise to us and not our performance for him. And Paul will explain this to the Galatian churches that he's writing to by pointing out in this passage that God's promise to Abraham 
came before God gave the law to Moses. Because remember the Judaizers, the false teachers that had crept into the church, were telling the Galatians they needed to come back under the Mosaic law. And Paul is saying God's promise to Abraham came before he ever gave the Mosaic law to Moses. So Paul is saying you can't come under the law to be made right because you're made right because of the promise that God made to Abraham, which finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 15 and 18 now. Hear the words of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul is continuing his discussion that we looked at last week, that we are justified as sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And now Paul's going to give a human example to explain how the gospel came and it comes to us by faith in the promises of God and not anything that we do. What Paul is saying in these verses is that no one adds to a covenant or annuls it once it is made. That once a covenant is inaugurated, there's no changing it. When you enter into a covenant with someone, you don't come back after you've shaken hands and made the deal. You don't come back and say, I want to change something there. Once the covenant is set in place, you don't tweak with it. You don't mess with it. You don't piddle around with it. It's a done deal. So Paul is saying that the covenant that God entered into with Abraham cannot be annulled, cannot be a change. He's saying that it is a done deal. God made promises to Abraham, and they were secure, and they could not be changed or altered because of Abraham's performance. Nor could God's promises be annulled by the performance of Moses and the Israelites after they received the law. So let's talk about two things here. We're going to talk about the promises that God made to Abraham. We're going to talk about the offspring that Paul is talking about here. So first, let's talk about the promises. Turn to Genesis 15 so we can understand the promises that God made to Abraham. What were the promises that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, made to Abraham? We will see it in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, 
so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the animal pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The promises that Yahweh the Sovereign Lord made to Abraham were four things. If you like alliteration, you're an alliteration person, they all begin with P, if that will help you remember. He promised them, Abram, people, descendants. He promised them a place. He promised him land. He promised him protection. And he promised Abram his presence. Yahweh promised that Ab- to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. That's the people. Yahweh promised Abraham that he would give his descendants land. That's the place. Yahweh promised Abraham that he would be his shield. That's the protection. And Yahweh promised Abraham that he would be with him and his descendants forever. That's his presence. All of these promises were true and would come to pass because Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, promised them. And then Yahweh ratified this covenant with Abraham by walking between the pieces of animals that were slaughtered. Now notice, only Yahweh, only the Lord walked in between, walked through the animals. This is how covenants in the ancient Near East were ratified. People would sign the document, if you will. They would sign on the dotted line by walking between the animals that they had cut in pieces. And when they did that, when two parties would enter into a covenant, they would slaughter the animals, put half over here, half over here. They would walk through them together. And when they did that, they were saying to one another, if I break this covenant with you, may I be cut up and cut off just like these animals. If I break this covenant, may I die and be ripped to shreds just like these animals that we just ripped to shreds. If I break this covenant, may curses fall on me. This is how covenants and treaties were entered into in the ancient Near East. 
So this covenant ceremony here in Genesis 15 is in keeping with the way covenants were made in Abraham's day. It's a part of the culture. Now, if you entered into a covenant with someone, you cut the animals up, put them part over here, part over here, and both of you would walk through and say to one another, may covenant curses fall on me if I break this covenant. May I end up just like this, this cow over here and over here if I break this covenant with you. Now, you can read all kinds of these uh, covenants and these treaties and royal land grants, etc., that were common in the ancient Near East in Abraham's time. But here's just one sample from Assyrian king Esarhaddon. Esarhaddon required his vassal servants to be faithful. And he said, if you're not faithful to me, we're entering into this covenant, then the following curses will fall on you. If you're unfaithful, here's an, a, a sample from Esarhaddon. He says, May Adad, this God, may Adad, the canal inspector of heaven and earth, put an end to vegetation in your land. May he avoid your meadows and hit your land with a severe destructive downpour. May locusts, which diminish the produce of the land, devour your crops. Let there be no sound of the grinding stone or the oven in your houses. Let barley rations to be ground, disappear for you so that they grind your bones, the bones of your sons and daughters instead of barley rations. May you eat in your hunger the flesh of your children. May all the gods who are named in this treaty tablet reduce your soil in size to be as a narrow as a brick. Turn your soil into iron so that no one can cut a furrow in it. Just as this sheep is cut open and the flesh of its young placed in its mouth, so may he, Shamash, this other God, make you eat in your hunger the flesh of your brothers, your sons, and your daughters. Just as these yearlings and spring lambs, male and female, are cut open and their entrails are rolled around their feet, so may the entrails of your sons and daughters be rolled around your feet. So entering into a covenant in the ancient Near East was serious business. This wasn't a simple handshake or a little fist bump. This was serious business. And this is exactly what's happening in Genesis 15 when Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, entered into a covenant with Abraham. The difference here, though, is that Abraham did not walk in between the animal pieces. Only the Lord did. Abraham was asleep when he saw this vision. It was dark. He did not pass between the animals. It was only the Lord who passed between the animal parts. And the Lord passed through these animal parts, as Genesis 15 says, in the dark as a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot. Perhaps it's another picture of the darkness of our sin and the light of the gospel that comes to us. There's so much going on here with this imagery. Here's just a side note. There are 10 nations listed here in Genesis 15 if you counted them. How many animal parts are there? There are five animals, heifer, goat, ram, turtle dove, and pigeon. The first three were cut in half, but verse 10 says that the two birds were not. Now, the birds would have had their heads ripped off because it's easier to separate 
an animal in that way. You can, that's how they do it in Leviticus 1 when they would offer sacrifices. You, you rip off the head. So I think the heads of the birds were ripped off. They weren't cut in two. So you have ten pieces of animals. Five over here, five over here. And Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, walks through them as a smoking fire pot in a flaming torch. Now, how does the Lord show up in the book of Exodus when he gives the land of these ten nations to Israel? He shows up as a fire by night and a cloud or smoke by day. How many animal pieces are there? Ten? How many nations are listed here? Ten. It's a picture of the Lord saying, this is what's going to happen. When you go into the land of these ten nations, I'm going to come and walk through and give you the land. So there's, there's so much imagery, so many layers to what's happening here in Genesis 15. The Lord cut, that's to make a covenant really, and he, it's the Hebrew word to cut. The Lord cut this covenant with Abraham and he kept it when Israel came out of Egypt. In Genesis 15, Abraham was asleep when he saw the vision. He did not pass between the animal parts. It was only the Lord who passed between the parts of the animals. Now, this is so important for us to understand. It's the Lord who walked between the pieces. And when he did that, he was saying to Abraham and to us that if he breaks this covenant, then covenant curses should fall upon him. And obviously, the Lord is not going to break the covenant that he has made with his people. That means then that the covenant and the promises to us are a done deal because the Lord will never break his promise to us And that means it's about promise and not performance. It was for Abraham, it was for Israel, and it is for us today. The Christian life is about Jesus and not about the Christian. The Christian life is not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus' performance for us and not about our performance for Him. God deals with us according to His promise and not according to our performance. Amen? Because if God dealt with us according to our performance, none of us would be here. We'd be wiped out. Church would be empty. God's covenant makes us secure in His grace. God entered into the covenant with Abraham before Abram's name was changed to Abraham. God entered into the covenant with Abraham before any commands were given. God entered into covenant with Abraham before the Mosaic law was given to Moses. God was pledging that no matter what his people do, he will keep his promise. Get that. No matter what his people do, no matter what we do, no matter what you do, he will keep his promise to you. That should encourage you. That no matter what you do, Jesus will keep his promise. Think about just last week. Let's just take last week. Think about your life, what you thought, what you said, what you did, and the motives that were driving all of that. Think about all that you did and your performance last week. Aren't you glad that it's about God's promise and not your performance? 
The covenant does not rely on Abraham. It only relies on God. And that's why the law is never a litmus test for us to receive God's blessings. The law is never a litmus test for us to receive God's blessings. The Judaizers were killing the joy of the Galatian churches and telling them that the litmus test for being in covenant with the Lord was coming back under the Mosaic law, adhering to the dietary laws. Specifically, though, it was about circumcision. The Galatians were being told, if you want to be made right with God, it's about your performance for Him. But they failed to see that God entered into a covenant with Abraham before there was law. The blessing is not dependent on keeping the law. God's blessings come to us and his blessings are secured for us because of his promises to us in the gospel. And his blessings come to us in Abraham's offspring, namely Jesus. That's Paul's point here. So we've talked about the promises What's the offspring? Look at Galatians 3, verses 16 through 18. Paul will explain that the offspring was really pointing to and looking forward to Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, comes by performance, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, Paul's a Hebrew scholar. He knows the Hebrew word here uh, is a collective noun, but he wants to show us that it actually refers to someone capital S, someone, that it's referring to Jesus Christ. Philip Ryken explains it this way. The promise of the offspring referred, first of all, to Abraham's son, Isaac. Ultimately, it referred to all of God's children, but especially to God's son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true offspring. He is the party to the covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant was all about Jesus Christ. It looked forward to his coming. The covenant promise was really for Christ. And when we belong to Christ, the promise belongs to us. The covenant promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring before the law was given at Sinai. That means that the law can't undo the covenant. That means keeping the law or not keeping the law cannot undo the covenant. The law does not make God's promise void because if we could inherit gospel promises through working for them by obeying the law, then it no longer comes by promise. If we could earn God's love and his blessings and his favor and all the inheritance that we have in Christ, if we could earn all of that by what we do, then it no longer comes by promise. It comes by our working, our doing, our earning. Remember, the law says do. Do this and you shall live. And the gospel says done. The law says, do this, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But the gospel says, done. Jesus has done it for us. 
when God made his promise to Abraham, he said, I will, I will, I will. But the law given to Moses, God said, you shall, you shall, you shall. We must understand this law gospel distinction here. Because our tendency as human beings, because our DNA, we get our DNA from Adam, our tendency is to do. God told Adam, do this. Do it. Stay away from from that one tree. Eat all you want. Here's the law. Do this. And Abraham didn't do it. And ever since then, every human being has been trying to do to get God's favor, trying to earn God's favor. And in the gospel, God says to us, done. Jesus has lived the life that you could never live, and he lived it for you. We must understand the law gospel distinction that Paul's talking about here. If archaeologists could unearth Abraham's journal, they'd find written in it in Hebrew that it would say, it's about promise, not performance. It's about God's promise to us and not our performance for him. So at this point, you should be asking, well, if the promise in the inheritance is ours by believing with faith the gospel and not by working hard to obey the law, then why in the world was the law given? If everything is about God's promise to us and not our obedience to his law, then why the law? Great question. I'll let Paul answer that since he beat you to the punch and he already asked that question. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's Jesus. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law was given to reveal our sin. That's one of the uses of the law. John Calvin said there are three uses of the law. I think we'll look at them next week. But one of the uses of God's law, of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, was to reveal our sin. John Calvin says, The law was given in order to make transgressions obvious and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. Martin Luther said, The true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. You see, it's the more that we know the law of God, more that we see the law of God, more that we hear the law of God, the more we see our sin, and therefore the more that we see that we desperately need Jesus the Redeemer to live the perfect life. Only He met the perfect standard of the law. Now Paul says that the law was given to reveal sin, and when it was given, it was put in place through angels. Angels are not specifically mentioned in Exodus 19 when God gave the law to Moses. But in Deuteronomy 33, Moses does say that angels were present. So God was giving the law to Israel and Moses was the intermediary. God gave Moses, the intermediary, the law to give to Israel 
And one of the reasons was to reveal Israel's sin. But Paul then asks and answers another great question in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, he says. The law is not contrary to the promises because it plays a role in leading us to Jesus, the Redeemer. Righteousness can never be attained through obeying the law, but that doesn't mean that the law is pointless. The law Scripture, Paul says, imprisoned every human being under sin so that the promise of the gospel might be given to those who believe. The law comes and shows us we're sinners. The law is good. It's God's moral standard, his perfection. The law is good. And the law shows us our sin so that we'll run to Jesus. And then Jesus will turn around and say, here's how you please your father. You obey the law. But we never obey the law to be made right with God. We only obey the law because we love Jesus. And he said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. So the law shows us our sin so that we run to Jesus. And when we see that Jesus lived the life that we could never live, then we come back to the law and we say, this is how I please him, by obeying the law, living the law out. And that's one of the three uses of the law. We'll talk about it next week. But the law shows us the darkness of our hearts so that the beautiful light of the gospel can shine forth. Here's how John Stott says it. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he can make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. The law says, do this. Be perfect. So what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, you can't live up to the standard. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say to you that the heart of the law, which is there all along, was if you hate someone, then you've murdered them. Jesus is showing us the standard that we can't keep. We can't be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. He's saying, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you lust in your heart, you commit adultery. Jesus shows us in the Sermon on the Mount that we can't live up to God's perfect standard and that he is the Savior for us. So the law says, do this. And we look around, and guess what? We find that we can't. We can't obey God's law. Our record of law-keeping stinks. We are lawbreakers by nature. All we see is our rebellion and sin, and we're stuck in the darkness of all that. We're stuck in the coffin of our rebellion and sin. But then the promise of the gospel shines in and says, 
done. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly for you. Jesus lived the life that you could never live because you're a lawbreaker. And now you are blameless, Christian. You have his perfect record. You are justified by faith and not by works. All that Paul is saying here in this hard section of Galatians is that it's about promise and not performance. And this is what we need to hear more than anything in this world. Because we are by nature doers. We think I can obey and get God's favor and he'll love me if I read my Bible and he'll love me if I come to church and if I skip church one week, oh, he's gonna hate me or if I don't pray today, he's gonna hate me. You all live there, don't you? How many of you this week thought I can't come into his presence because of the way I talked to my wife yesterday or because I didn't read the word of God for two days? How many of you came into his presence this week and thought I don't deserve to be here? The rest of you don't have your hands up are liars and you're proving that you're lawbreakers because this is what we do. We're doers by nature. I can just work hard and be obedient and then he'll love me. Wrong. That goes against the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life for you so that you can be made right with God. We've got to get our minds around this and believe it. The inheritance is ours because he obeyed, not because we obey. And the promise shines forth in Colossians 1, 12 through 14, when Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the coffin of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus qualified you, Christian, quit trying to qualify yourself. We think, oh, okay, I need Jesus to get into the kingdom of God. But if I'm going to stay in the kingdom of God, then it's up to my obedience. Wrong. Quit obsessing about your performance. You are secure if you're a Christian because of Jesus, not because of what you do. You are rich in Christ. You have all that you need. You can't earn his promise. You can't earn his love. You can't earn his forgiveness. You can't earn his affection. You can't earn his favor. But here's what we do. We sin every day, all of us, all day long. I've probably sinned since I've been preaching. We sin all day long and our guilt and our shame puts us back down into these dark coffins and we feel condemned and we think, I can't get out. You are blameless in his eyes if you've turned from your sins and you trust in Jesus. If you have repented and you're trusting in the gospel, you are blameless in God's eyes and when God sees you, he sees Jesus He doesn't see you and your failures and the porn you looked at last week or the angry outbursts at a co-worker or the worry and the stress that ate you up and kept you up all night. And he doesn't see you as the person that had the conversation with your spouse on the way to church. You ever have those? At home or in the car, you have one of those conversations. You know the kind I'm talking about, where you get out and suddenly you're magically nice to other people. How you doing? Praise the Lord. And you just said some things to your spouse that you thought, man, if anybody heard this, I would go jump off a cliff. Maybe some of you experienced that this morning. 
and you came in here thinking, this is how God sees me. Wrong. If you're a Christian, God doesn't see that. He knows it, of course. It's omniscient. But that's not how he sees you. You walk through these doors as if you had never sinned in your life in God's eyes because of Jesus. He doesn't see any of that stuff. When God looks at you, he sees his son and his heart overflows with love towards you. The question today is, do you believe it? If you don't believe it, then pray what I think is the prayer of the Christian life from Mark 9, 24. I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that more than any other prayer. I believe, God, just help my unbelief. I know I'm blameless in your eyes. I know I can come into your presence, but I feel like i got to wallow for 30 minutes before you'll accept me. And then eventually you'll uncross your arms and your frown will turn to a smile and you'll say, okay, come here. I don't believe that when I wake up I have access into his presence. I believe, help my unbelief. That's my life. It's not a bad prayer to pray when you start obsessing over your performance. Are you free today? Quit performing for God and start trusting and believing in and resting in his promise. Because when you don't do that, your guilt and your shame and your condemnation will put you back down into a dark coffin. And in that moment, you need the match of the gospel and you need to strike it so that you can see the words on the inside of the coffin that says it's not about promise. It's, I mean, it's all about promise. It's not about performance. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We condemn ourselves, but God doesn't if you're a believer. Jesus isn't in the grave anymore and he's not in your coffins either. We put ourselves there. He doesn't put us there. Jesus is the one on the outside, holding the shovel. You can trust the man holding the shovel because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, what a hard passage to at least put in sermon form. Your word is good. The law is good because it, even this morning, has exposed us as lawbreakers the gospel is 10 million times better because it declares to your children that we are blameless in your eyes. God, help us to get off the performance treadmill. Help us to quit thinking that you love us more because we read our Bible. Help us to quit thinking that you love us more because we give and we serve. Help us to understand that you love us because of Jesus and what he has done for us, and not what we do for you. God, we need to be set free today. Oh God, come and set us free because we try to work hard for your blessing and work for your favor. And it just exhausts us and wears us out. Help us to believe that Jesus paid it all. Help us to believe that we overcome because of his life, death, and resurrection, and not anything that we do. God, come and set us free today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.